0: The information contained on the Real Health Podcast and the resources mentioned are for educational purposes only. They are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information contained on this podcast is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Information provided by hosts and guests on the Real Health Podcast or the use of any products or services mentioned does not create a practitioner-patient relationship between you and any persons affiliated with this podcast. This is the Real Health Podcast brought to you by Reardon Clinic. Our mission is to bring you the latest information and top experts in functional and integrative medicine to help you make informed decisions on your path to real health.
1: Okay, well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Ron Hunting Hockey, and we're here today for another episode of the Real Health Podcast. And I'm very delighted that uh, Jess Higgins Kelly is my guest today. And Jess, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our program.
2: Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here and great to meet you.
1: So, Jess, uh, the way we connect is that Jess was the co author of a fantastic book the metabolic approach to cancer. So Dr. Nasha Winters, who our our listeners are aware of, she's the other co-author. And so we were I was going to just start out by having you tell us a little bit about your background as a new, as a cancer oncology nutritionist.
2: Yeah. Um so I started out actually with an undergraduate degree in journalism. So I worked for many years. I still do writing, editing for magazines and newspapers and always love to write. And uh, journalism is, you know, really about getting the real story, uh, which I've always loved and help getting to know, you know, later on with clients, not shying away from asking hard or uncomfortable questions and, you uh, and after journalism school, I graduated in 2010 as a Master Nutrition Therapist from the Nutrition Therapy Institute in Denver, Colorado, and then I was lucky enough to work at a clinic in, uh, in Durango with Dr. Nisha and Dr. Kirsten West, one of your own, and uh, we were doing some really cutting-edge stuff with the oncology population Definitely. and results, and it was a blast, and it was a great team. Um, and it was really there that a lot of the early learning happening uh, happened with metabolic dietary therapies. And sometime around 2013, Nation and I were like, "Hey, let's let's write let's write a book. Let's write the metabolic approach to cancer." And uh, you know, we weren't too sure if it was going to be a bit ahead of its time. You know, certainly then, you know, as you know, no one in the nutrition world was talking about cancer. It was absolutely taboo in the nutrition world to talk about. Yeah cancer at all so um but we're you know the journalist in me is like oh yeah let's do it Nisha had great ideas I had a writing background and so you know we're working in this clinic and we're doing we're working on the story and um on the book and you know right in the middle of uh, writing it we're in a contract with a publisher we had a deadline and um my dad got diagnosed with GBM which is the you know the most aggressive form of of brain cancer right, and right. so um you know I kind of went all in, you know, digging into as much research, uh, you know, the book really came to life because it meant more, you know, being on the, the patient side really of, of the cancer process, um, and, you know, leading to the incredible power of ketogenic dietary therapies and therapeutic fasting, especially with neurological cancers and, and that. So, um, so at the same time, uh, you know, writing the metabolic approach to cancer, I was also teaching uh, at NTI, I was teaching clinical nutrition and several other courses. Um, and I thought, hey, you know, let's, let's build a program out of this at the same time, an education program um, for nutritionists, because there wasn't anything and there still really isn't anything available for nutrition and medical practitioners um, right now. And so... The Oncology Nutrition Institute was born. I officially founded it in 2017, and um, and the book uh, came out in 2017, and it's continued to be a smashing success, which is great. Nation, I are so pleased, and uh, it's been a great ride, and uh, and been wonderful to reach so many people with sort of what seemed to be new information about.
1: Um, well, I think what is so groundbreaking is that. It- most people, when they think of cancer, they think of as this monolithic thing, cancer or the cancer tumors themselves. And what what the metabolic book did is it helped people understand that tumors just don't suddenly arise; that there are uh, there are reasons, imbalances, uh, factors in the body metabolic factors that uh, create a predisposition for getting cancer. And so logically then, if you can figure out what those predisposing factors are and address them individually, the what what in the book, I think you call the terrains of, of cancer, you can actually uh, dis, dismember, shall we say, or, or take apart, the reason why the person got the cancer. In other words, help them get better, help them get better. And so today, you know, we could spend, we don't have a, enough time to go into all 10. And there's one that I don't even think it's exactly mentioned in the book, but we were talking earlier about the importance of a person being hydrated, adequately hydrated. And, and, it's, and it may be surprising to our audience that if you are chronically dehydrated, that can be a A risk for cancer. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Because that's a fascinating thought. Because the reason I think it's fascinating is because we can all do that behavior better if we just understand how important it is. But how does it link to cancer?
2: Right. So chronic dehydration over time, which it it becomes very easy to get dehydrated quickly. So it's the only nutrient that we, we only can live without it for three days. So after three days, we die. There's no other nutrient around that is required in that frequency and that amount. And even a 2% loss of, of fluids um, can, has been found to increase the risk of several metabolic conditions, um, specifically because it can reduce the function or potentially lead to the damage of mitochondria. So mitochondria use hydrogen um, from water to help produce ATP. So when we're dehydrated, there's just going to be less hydrogen around. And then secondly, um, because there's less water to help carry away some of the toxic byproducts of metabolism, there's more of a chance of some of these uh, potentially mitochondrial damaging toxins to hang out. So, um, you know, in other words, uh, you know, we can look at dehydration as a probable likely cause in metabolic dysfunction it's, and damage. It's been observed in cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. We also see it, urinary tract infections, kidney, renal dysfunction, several cardiac events. So it really, and it really, you know, like everything kind of comes back to the mitochondria and ATP. And one of the side effects that we see of dehydration first is fatigue. You know, people are, Dragging a little bit. They don't have that ATP. They don't have that energy. So one of the second things we see is just a little cognitive dysfunction, a bit of confusion, you know, especially in the elderly population. We're seeing such an increase of dementia and Alzheimer's and most physicians are not asking these patients, hey, how much water are you drinking? And, you know, we've seen that the more chronically ill a person is, often we see trying hydration go hand in hand. So it's low hanging fruit, you know, from a nutrition perspective to just get people hydrated again.
1: Yeah. I, uh, it's funny, but about probably 15 years ago, uh, we used to have a, a every Thursday, a, a luncheon lecture at the Reardon clinic. And I, I was supposed to share it with Dr. Reardon, but he was usually out of town. So the luncheon lecture was mostly Dr. Ron talking about things. And so one of the books that I was fascinated with is uh, The Body's Many Cries for Water by a Dr. Batmanjali. And it was funny. I had I was doing the lecture and we had a full house, probably 60, 70 people. And 10, 15, 20 minutes into the lecture, People are just grabbing the pitchers and just drinking water and drinking water, you know, because it's just talking about dehydration really made them thirsty. Plus, it made them realize, my gosh, this is such a simple thing. It's right here in front of us all the time. And we don't realize that, uh, you know, when we're tired and irritable and s- feeling sick, maybe if we would just drink more water, that would, that would do the job. It uh, sounds too simple.
2: to make nutrition and health and healing more complex but this is a very easy way and should be the baseline i feel for everybody who walks in the door i mean you look at things like constipation you know it's we're dehydrated and the other interesting thing is that the sensations for hunger and thirst are the same so Hmm. um When people are hungry, oftentimes that's just another neuro expression for the body to be, hey, you know, you're thirsty. And when we get people hydrated, they tend to quickly lose weight um, because they're not eating to compensate. You know, there is some water in certain foods. Um, So that's a big factor. We also see that people, um, they don't like the taste of water. I've heard this so many times and people are like, oh, I know I'm dehydrated they're like but water's so boring so you know we hear that our thirst mechanism declines with age you know a lot of people just live on coffee and energy drinks and other things that have diuretic effects and then without replenishing it with with water and so it's very easy to become dehydrated even a little bit is going to make a difference so it's it's something we should all focus, I
1: think, a lot more on. I'm totally in agreement. Uh, By the way, I brought my water with me here. (laughs) I was telling Jess earlier that our daughter, who's a chiropractor, was chiding my wife and I that we weren't drinking enough water. And so, you know, listen to your children, you know, especially the smart ones like her. But um, anyway, let's talk about, you know, sometimes people worry about the quality of the water they're drinking. So how how can we go about improving? You know, I kind of tell people I'm not real big about tap water. I guess it's better than no water at all. But what would be in terms of helping people get the best kinds of water to drink? Well, what, what, what would be some suggestions you'd make?
2: Yeah. So you know, the first question we ask is how much water do you drink a day, and the second question is is what's your water source? Right. So. The majority of people globally are getting their water either from public water sources, well water, or bottle or canned water. Um, Estimates now are that almost one in five people are getting their water from uh, bottles or cans. Um, Plastic water bottles um, have been found to leach endocrine-disrupting chemicals into them. They're not only harming our physical health, but our environmental health, those tiny little plastic bottles that give you like one sip and then are on the planet forever. We're really plastic water bottles are really don't recommend those. Um, BPA and those plastics have been linked to breast cancer, several other types of of breast cancer. Um, you know, I think that people really need to be careful about the bottled or canned water. And then this goes back to what we were just talking about. About some people are like, Water's so boring. So I'm going to drink a bubbly great water bottle. Stand with, oh, Colorado, Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: good one. Yes. That should be one of the first health investments people make is a good water bottle, just like that. You fill it up in the morning and uh you know can that you carry it
1: around and this little got a little hook thing there. It's easy, convenient. So, yeah,
2: exactly. No, perfect example that that's a really good thing to do is to get stainless steel um, or glass. Uh, that's really important um, instead of some of these plastic water bottles. Um, but we see a lot of people drinking seltzers now, so there's all different kinds of seltzer water and different things. And then, you know, under that umbrella is there are some seltzer waters that are great, but there are also others that have artificial sweeteners and natural flavors and all these other additions that definitely aren't free. Just because it has no calories doesn't mean it's free. But there are some good seltzer waters that are doing, you know, they're you got botanical additions and no, no artificial ingredients or anything like that. And and I'm groovy with those. It's like if you like your seltzer water and you like a little fizz, the consensus is that uh carbonated water is just as hydrating as flat water. So if people, you know, are going to get water that way, that's fine. Um, you know, I I I do need to quantify a, a little bit here that um, you know, only 3 in 10 people, so 3 in 10 people worldwide don't even have access to clean water. So most people don't have it at home. Um, So it's declining in the U.S. because of these widespread droughts, et cetera. Any water is better than no water. So um, you know, I don't want health to become only for the wealthy. So I like to speak to as many, you know, populations uh, globally as possible. So, you know, when we're saying there's no if plastic water bottles are all you have drink the water, right. Yeah, um, but if, yeah. uh, if you have a chance moving, moving along, so if you can find good seltzer waters that are good, go for it. Um, Public drinking water contents, uh, it depends on where you live. Um, So several years ago, the Environmental Working Group came out with this incredible database where you can enter your zip code and it will give you a full readout of the contaminants that are in your local public water supply. And that's really helpful. So um, we recommend that that people do that. Um, You know, a lot of our public water supply is treated with chlorine Um, And fluoride, which we have found links to different endocrine and neurological um, effects. Um, So it's worth getting a sense of what's in your public drinking water. You know, for the most part, if you have, uh, if you're on city water, uh, getting a reverse osmosis system is excellent. It's it's kind of just a a great catch-all. Um, and then, uh, but a whole house, and that's important because we absorb a lot of w- what's on our skin transdermally. So, if you're taking a shower, I'm going to talk hopefully at some point about um, therapeutic baths. So, if there's toxins in your water supply, it's worth getting a whole house filter, um, just because of the other exposures in um, in showers. So, I think that that you know is is really nice because you know it's what you're drinking, but it's also what you're putting on your body.
0: There's a lot more to this conversation and it's coming up right after a quick break. Today's episode of the Real Health Podcast is brought to you by the Reardon Clinic Nutrient Store. The Nutrient Store is your resource for the highest quality nutritional supplements. Every supplement in the store is handpicked by the expert medical staff at Reardon Clinic, providing you with the best quality, purity, consistency, and effective dosing available visit store.reardonclinic.org to shop online.
1: What do you think about the Brita pitcher or things like that? Is that is that probably better than nothing, but not the best? <laughs>
2: Yes, go ahead and grab one of those, any type of filter on it. And you can tell once you become kind of a water connoisseur, if you travel and you taste some of these hotel waters or different places, I mean, wow, there can it can really be very off-putting. So, um, Berkey does make a, a smaller one that you can travel with or put in your check on. Uh, but, yeah, a little Brita filter, great, better than nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. When people really call awareness and do that self-education to what's in their unique water supply. It really, um, it, it's a big aha moment. Um, and then, so the third source that people tend to get their water from is well water. And, uh, so if people live in an agricultural area, say that those, those wells can be contaminated with things like glyphosate or heavy metals. So what we do, you know, when we're talking, through water is, you know, hey, get your well water tested. There's a lot of local, you can get a kit for like 35 bucks and you can find out what is in your well water. And that's really important. So we're on a well, for example, and our well tested really high in iron and manganese. So we filter out iron and manganese. And then, you know, I test my ferritin levels at least once a year, that iron storage, just as a cross reference. So it's really helpful testing some of these nutrients and these Minerals that should be in water, like electrolytes, you know, you guys at the Riordan plant, you know, you offer nutrient testing. It's critically important um, just to make sure that minerals which are in water aren't reaching toxic levels, but they're also there and present in correct levels. So, you know, minerals, it's a delicate balance. You can have too much. Or too Do you little. think
1: electrolyte packets are a good idea? It probably depends no. on what's in it, but but what would you what would you say would be a good source of electrolytes for to improve the quality of your water
2: yeah you know I think as a baseline for folks if they get some type of a wa- reverse osmosis filter and then take a couple uh, mineral drops I really suggest um, in, ad- in addition to using uh, not just electrolytes so in the spirit of you know looking at Things that are overlooked. This is really fascinating. So, um, lithium um, is a should be a component of of water. And uh, lithium, um, it's an essential trace element, and it performs several metabolic tasks. It's antioxidant. and it improves mitochondrial function. Regulates glutamate. Decreases uh, inflammation. And it was actually the original up ingredient in Seven Up soda that was wow. invented. Back in 1929. So lithium, we know, has been uh, used for, you know, mood stable. It's been prescribed by a clinical psychologist for decades. Reduces for-
1: stress, reduces your risk for Alzheimer's, uh, reduces your risk for depression and other mental illness. So lithium is a big one.
2: So several ecological studies um, and meta-analyses have found an inverse relationship Uh, between lithium and water and suicide in the general population. So there's a large push actually now to have lithium added to public water drinking supplies for mental health, similar to how fluoride was added for dental caries. So lithium is a big deal. So circling back to uh, to your question, I get mineral drops that have electrolytes, but also have a little bit of lithium. And you don't need that much. So the literature shows that uh, you know low dose lithium, like less than 0.5 uh, millimolars a day, can be beneficial for cardiovascular, metabolic, cognitive functions. So you don't need a lot. Um, but I, if you're going to do an electrolyte, you know, gold standard is just read the label and see it's got a little lithium in it mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's what I typically
1: recommend. Just a little drop. Cool. Okay. So, um, how much, how much water should a person drink? I know they, there are calculations based upon weight, obviously the, 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 the degree of humidity in the air, uh, strenuous workouts, blah, kind of, kind of give us some ideas of how people can gauge whether or not they're getting enough water.
2: The basic guideline that's sort of been around and accepted for a while is half your body weight in ounces of water per day. Of water. Right. So, a um, hundred and forty-pound uh, person would want to be getting, you know, seventy ounces a day. So, um, so
1: that so that'd be like ten to twelve glass, eight-ounce glasses of water, roughly. First. A-
2: Right. And then more with exercise. So tack on 32 ounces for every hour of intense exercise, because a lot of water is lost through respiration. So Mm -hmm. we sort of take that for granted with the, you know, everyone's playing pickleball these days after a round of pickleball, get out and make sure that you're drinking water, you know, instead of a Diet iced tea or a diet lemonade or some of these other things that can have some additions that you know may may not be as
1: beneficial. I encourage pay, my patients to drink two glasses of water upon awakening because they they have been breathing out a lot of water during the night. So,
2: well, and people wake up and they're tired
1: mm-hmm. and
2: they go straight to a caffeinated beverage.
1: Yeah, so more dehydrated,
2: right? So you know. Like I said, when you get these people who are just subclinically, just a little dehydrated, and you get them on board, their energy improves, their mental focus improves, their mood—it does so many things, you know. It's it's wonderful. So,
1: very good. Uh, how did just we're 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 going to have to kind of be wrapping up things here? But I'm curious, how did you get on to water? Because I know you, you you're very diverse in your interests. But is this something new that you've kind of just discovered or or has this always been a part of? I mean, it, it, it seems like it should be part of the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. We sh- <laughs>
2: That's
1: the 11th terrain.
2: <laughs> oh, I know. No, and H have already added several more. We're like, what about this? And we need to do another edition. And uh, yeah. yeah, you know, there's so many things to consider under the umbrella but you know to be honest what really got me going on it I, I've always talked to people about hydration and water especially working in the oncology where people are you know they may be vomiting or have diarrhea oh. or really de- really dehydrated becomes a, a really rises as a clinical priority um you know we've always said you know drink your water a day and all that but it was when I started looking into lithium um and I'm going to show this book is awesome. Have you ever seen this? It's part of our required reading at the oncology. No.
1: Oh, wait a minute. I have read that book. I I have read uh, Dr. Greenblatt's got a couple books on lithium. I've read, I know him personally.
2: It, came out to, yeah. it was fascinating. And it was, you know, looking at where we're getting our water and how little lithium and then these links, all these studies showing less lithium and drinking water and these rates of suicide and these huge, I'm like, Holy, this is big. You know, this is big news and this is something that we should really be especially with the pervasiveness of me- mental health issues now. You know?
1: What is the name of the famous place where people go and they get into the water but uh I can't think of it, but it's over in in uh in Europe and it's a it's a religious site where they 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 either get in the water or drink the water. Anyway, that water is high in lithium. Well, <laughs>
2: that's what I wanted to say the other thing with water is not only can we use it internally but externally yeah. in these healing waters you know i went to baden-baden in germany and it's these healing these different heated temperature baths it's designed to raise your temperature up and then lower it again so you know at home you can take a bath with good water put some epsom salts in it that's it's magnesium you know you're going to absorb it transdermally you know you can get so many therapeutic benefits from water externally so
1: there's a uh i think it's called balneotherapy. or uh mark mark sloan has written a book called Balneotherapy, therapy and it's all about baths and how in the history of medicine that was uh, played a major role and we've just let that all go
2: these healing springs worldwide that people have made pilgrimages to mm-hmm. you know For thousands of years, we've been using water therapeutically, and it needs to kind of circle back to the forefront of, I think, modern therapeutic modalities. So I'm glad we've been able to talk about it. You bet.
1: Doctor, are you a a doctor? No, I'm a nutrition therapist. All right. So Jess Higgins, Kelly, thank you so very much for being on our program. This is enlightening, and hopefully people will realize that they've got a very simple cure For so many illnesses just right there in the glass right in front of them if they'll just use it adequately so thank you so much for all you've done to help us understand cancer but even the bigger role which is the prevention of cancer you know drinking more water can help you prevent cancer so uh, thank you so much and we'll hopefully we can get you back on this show again and we'll do some other terrains thanks again
0: thank you Thank you for listening to the Real Health Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all of the episodes and show notes over at realhealthpodcast.org. Also, be sure to visit reardonclinic.org, where you will find hundreds of videos and articles to help you create your own version of real health.